Hello and welcome to August's bonus episode of the Dive Down. Oh man, Stan always does this. I have to like remember how to do this. So we are a Magic the Gathering podcast focused on the modern and pioneer formats for the casual spike. And with me this evening is Patrick Sullivan, uh, known for many things, probably primarily for being a, a Star City Games broadcaster and writer. Uh, also a game developer and many other things, which we will get into this evening. Thanks for joining me tonight, Patrick. Pleasure for having me. Appreciate the invite. So there's, there's so many things that we can talk to you about, and that's the problem because you are known for being an aggressive red mage. I mean, you have one of the best Twitter handles in the game of basic mountain. Uh, of course, you know, like I just mentioned, you are a, a writer and broadcaster for SCG. You have experiences in game development. you also have a competitive play experience in magic. So you are a well-rounded fellow and I'm glad to be able to pick your brain both for myself. And I think for uh, the listeners, a lot of that stuff is very comfortably in the rearview mirror. So I'm happy to talk about it. But, um, you know, I, 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 at this point, don't even really imagine myself as a competitive player. I can speak of it in the past tense, but we can go over all of it. <laughs> so what's, what's fun is this is the, usually Stan says with me on the line from Denver, Colorado is, is Shane, but I have you with me on the line from Denver, Colorado as well. Right. And yes, and we didn't realize this was the case until we got to, to talking. Um, and yeah, it's an unfortunate thing about our circumstances right now with COVID that uh, we could be doing this at a bar or in someone's living room over a drink or whatever. Even though we're in the same city, we got to do it remote. Well, maybe one of these days uh, we can have round two. Um, but Patrick, let's let's do some basic things. What are you doing? What are you doing for work right now? So my primary nine to five and you know it's it's contracting the hours are flexible but primarily working now with wizards of the coast um i i think officially with play design but i'm kind of touching a bunch of different parts of the process um doing some stuff with with some initial design work and just kind of just a jack of all trades can be sort of directed where resources are needed hmm. i have been working as a contract game designer now since uh, December of last year, so pre-COVID, um, I took on a project with Activision, oh, excuse me, not Activision, uh, EA, uh, that uh, concluded in July. I have another side project now that I'm really excited about, not in a position to talk about it just yet. Um, but, you know, about half of my working hours are allocated to Wizards of the Coast. And then the other, you know, 10 or 15 a week, I fill in with other kind of side projects, writing a column for Star City Games, doing the occasional term on the weekends. So I'm very fortunate that, uh, you know, I kind of set up this remote uh, work environment prior to COVID kind of making a necessity for a lot of people. So um, my work has not slowed down, which is really fortunate. And um, the uh, the work I'm doing is really enjoyable, really like the people that I'm working with on um, all the projects I happen to be working on. That's awesome. And are you also still involved in with things with Star City Games? I know Star City Games is doing some broadcasting, and of course, you're still uh, writing your your column all the time. Yeah, so um, you know, it took them uh, SCG a little bit to kind of get the logistics around how they wanted to run arena centric tournaments, um, and I think there was a they had to get some permission from Wizards of the Coast too. There was just a back and forth there, but now it's up and running. Um, I covered two. Uh, shows in July. I did one 
last weekend and I'll be covering Saturday of this coming. Um, so I don't exactly know sort of like what the long-term scope of that looks like. I think SEG is kind of reading, reacting like everyone else is who knows how long this is going to be the reality for. Uh, but in the meantime, we've set up a digital infrastructure that allows people to play events and I've been covering from home and, you know, if I could do one, two, three of these days a month, I'd be happy with it. Uh, but we'll just kind of have to wait and see how it shakes out. For sure. We'll talk about your Watsi involvement a little bit more for sure. I don't want to forget that, but let's talk a little bit about magic. How long have you been playing magic? I got to get out like a calculator, like <laughs> out of fingers and toes. So my first set was um, either revised or the dark, but that oh, era. Classic. So, yeah, so um, there used to be a store called The Gamekeeper. It was like a national chain in malls and stuff. And my mom knew that I was into games, but like didn't really dive very deep past that. So every year for Christmas, she'd walk into The Gamekeeper and ask, you know, what's the hot thing right now? And Christmas of 94 or 95, when I was in the seventh grade, uh, it was magic. So I got a two-player revised starter deck and uh, tried to figure out the rules but couldn't. And it turned out that a lot of my friends who I was playing Dungeons and Dragons with were already playing Magic. Yeah. So I was able to get an on-ramping rules-wise. And, you know, I didn't play in tournaments for a very long time. And tournaments were also kind of a – they were not the most, you know, they were not the biggest part of the scene in 95 or 96 either. Yeah. Um, but I, I had a circle of friends to play with in middle school and high school and kind of leveled up that way initially. Yeah, it's like when I started – it was like, I think it was the summer of 95. So I was playing like fourth edition Ice Age stuff. Mm. And yeah, you know, like my my game store was so, it was just like a bunch of casual kids. Like we had no idea what was going on with the game. Like, you know, like my favorite card was like uh, the the shade. And I thought it was so cool, like to be able to like frozen shade. I was like, oh, you can, oh, you can pump it. Like if you have extra black. And like, I, I had no idea. Like, I don't even think I played like play sets of things. It's just like, you know, total random cards. And I had no idea that there was a tournament scene or that like what the depth of competitive play already was. There is something to I mean, I, I think that's all true. Like even in 2020, like obviously there's more information about like what's powerful and there's more collective knowledge about how to build decks. But like the things that speak to you speak to you. And uh, people played with the cards that resonated or evocative or appeared powerful for reasons, even if those weren't actually true. Um, and even if we have sort of more communal knowledge about these games and magic specifically, like the people still just gravitate towards the stuff that appeals to them. Yeah, good point. All right. We'd like to lead off all of our bonus episode interviews with our Inside the Grinders studio section, trying to evoke Inside the Actors studio. So we have five lightning round questions about magic. First, what's your favorite card? Lightning Bolt. Man, I, I was I had about... $10,000 on lightning bolts. I'm glad <laughs> that Stan and Dave are going to have to pay up. Okay. Mm. What's your least favorite card? Uh, hmm. From a competitive, like this is me as a victim or just as a design thing or. Yeah, this is the, see, this is a this sli- is slightly part. deeper for you because yeah, let's let, I want, because I want to talk about kind of card design. Let's say your least favorite card from sort of a design standpoint or like a technical standpoint besides ravenous chupacabra. Besides Radinus Chupacabra. That that really shrinks it down. Control magic. Go with control magic. We can get into that, but okay. that's my that's my answer. What's your uh, favorite format? Booster draft. Yeah. I've been missing draft for a while. What's your favorite moment in a game of magic? Uh so my first 
tournament that I really traveled to was in Edison, New Jersey. It was a Grey Matter tournament, which is actually Brian David Marshall used to be like the owner and tournament organizer. And it was this tournament series that was in like New York, New Jersey, Philly, just like the very like foundation for for like major organized play. So I'm there and I'm playing in the type one tournament. But that's because those are the cards I owned. I didn't have like a type one deck. So yeah, I'm going around the room. And I'm scouting, seeing what people are doing. And everyone's got, like, powered out decks and whatever. And everyone's playing with Juggernaut, which is, like, what I don't know why that was so common. Because every deck started, like, four plow, four bolt, four disenchant. So Juggernaut was never good. But anyhow, anyone always always started with four. And I played, I decided to play with Folk of Anhava, which is a, uh, it's a card from Homelands. It's a 1-1 one, one for a green. Oh, those cards don't and, count, I thought, Homelands cards. I know, they, they, I, I. That's all I could afford. I had a lot of Homelands cards. They were not hard to find. Uh, and it's uh, it's a 1-1 one, one for 1 that gets plus 2, plus 0 when it blocks. Okay. So I'm like, okay, sick. Play this thing. They got to attack with a Juggernaut, and then it blocks into three, one, you trade off. A lot of cards I could have played with, but that was the one that like spoke to me for a reason. So uh, first match I play down, and you know it's like I'm like 15 or 14. Guys, like looks like he's in his 20s at least. And he opens on like... Dual Land, Mox, Soul Ring, whatever, Juggernaut. And I'm like, turn one, Folk Van Hava Force, picks it up, has to read it, and like <laughs> shrug, shrugs, attacks the Juggernaut, and I block. I go on to win the match against this person, and I'm like, I am so good at magic. I was like hooked. I was like, the, the, I imagined, I like looked into the future and saw how, what was going to happen, and then it happened. It was, I, oh, I, man. I mean, that's super satisfying. I, I, I won, you know, I, I've had like, you know, some, some, Grand Prix top eights and cash and pro tours and whatever, like one however many PTQs. But in terms of feeling like agency and like I had discovered something on my own and it it actually came up the way I thought it was going to come up. Yeah, I was hooked. Like I was hooked on tournament magic after that. That's awesome. All right, and then finally, what's your favorite piece of magic slang? Um, ah, that's a tough one because all the ones I grew up with are so offensive, so <laughs> derogatory. Oh no. I'm trying to think now, what, was there one that was like, I guess gas. Gas is a good one because it could mean both. It's It sort of just could be used generically as a positive thing. Yeah. Like that card is gas. Or it can uh, express having a lot of resources to work with, like a loaded hand or mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a ton of mana to work with or, or whatever. So that one is the one that like. It's modal. It's the one that I, it's modal, it's positive, and it's one where if you use it around muggles, they can from context usually glean what you're talking about yeah exactly so go with that one good points all right so first section i think i'm going to talk about is uh, game development because you have a lot of experience in that and a lot of our listeners probably best know you as like an scg writer and a broadcaster but you have a really long history in game design uh tell me a little bit about your experiences in that realm so um in the early 2000s i graduated high school from in 2000 and uh, went to Seton Hall for one year, dropped out, like didn't attend any classes my second semester, just like totally washed out, came home. Um, uh, parents kicked me out of the house pretty soon after that. So I was like, rudder, like uh, briefly homeless and like kind of rudderless summer of uh, 2001. I worked at a card store in uh, while I was in high school and the owner of the store was like, you can come here and work. Uh, we can come up with like a housing situation and if you work for X years at like very little money, then you'll get an equity position in the store. At the end of mm. this, I was like, I got nothing going on. I got nothing. I got nothing going on. 
And this is at least is like a two year runway to do something. Um, so I was working at the store. I was playing a lot of magic competitively. Um, and that went on for a couple of years. And during this time, got uh, got married to a former editor at Wizards of the Coast who was originally from Pennsylvania and who had like moved back home after leaving WotC in like 2002. So um, uh, Upper Deck Entertainment um, was doing Versus System. They had a lot of money from Yu-Gi-Oh! They were hiring like like all the Your Move Games guys like Danny Mandel and Dave Humphreys and just a bunch of other like big names in competitive magic mm-hmm. at the time. People who are still like, I mean, Dave Humphreys is one of the senior people at, at Magic now. So, I mean, it was like a, a really talented staple. Uh, they actually reached out to my wife to say, like, we need an editor. Can you move to San Diego, like, now? And I was had some reservations about it. I grew up in Jersey. Like, I had no roots in San Diego, no prospects. At least the card store was something. And they said, look, we know Patrick from the Pro Tours and from, like, poker and stuff. We'll give him an internship. Come out here. We'll give them six months, make good deal. And, um, you know, if it doesn't work out, then it doesn't work out. But at least, like, there's something waiting for him as well. So that was enough. We packed up and moved out. Um, I think we permanently moved out there spring of 2004. And, you know, the internship got extended. And, you know, it was one of those, like, you're an employee being denied. You're not a contractor. You're an employee being denied payroll rights or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But again, I had nothing going on, so it was whatever. Eventually got hired um, and was able to kind of stick it out in game design. Um, you know, moved to Cryptozoic after Upper Deck lost the license to World of Warcraft and was there for a while. And then, you know, a bunch of different studios. But I got my foot in the door very fortunately because they were actually headhunting my wife. And um, <laughs> it turned out that I had enough of an aptitude for the, or they liked having me around enough or whatever um, that I got to be there full time eventually and then kind of took it from there. So what kind of stuff were you doing? Um, you know, you were working on the World of Warcraft card game. I know that was kind of a, and that was that was that the influence for Hearthstone eventually? Like were you just started doing mechanic design, card design, creative? So the timeline's a little weird there, and it's been long enough that I can actually talk about some of the stuff, I don't think, without like blowing up any <laughs> NDAs or whatever. So initially I got work I was working on Versus System, and uh World of Warcraft uh, came down the pipeline. Set one was just like gangbusters, like it just could not stop uh, like we sold as much as we printed. Packs were selling at stores for like eight dollars a piece mm. when MSRP was three fifty. Like it was it was a huge, huge we had uh, essentially the equivalent of PTQs six weeks after the set launched where like 120 people were showing up. Wow. Like it was huge. Um, but unfortunately set two kind of had a homelands fallen empires issue. It was overproduced. And from there we were kind of like, it was making its money, but it wasn't, it wasn't what it looked like it was going to be after set one. So with upper deck, like the previous ownership and management was known as being like really litigious, really um, like, uh, didn't pay contractors, including artists on time and, and blizzards like really protective of like the people that are in their uh, under their orbit, their contractors they use of like being mistreated or not being paid promptly. is like major red flags. Mm-hmm. They, they do not like all this stuff. So eventually the, the relationship with upper deck and blizzard deteriorated to the point where I, I don't exactly know how the dealings went, but basically uh, a bunch of upper deck executives or ex executives with Blizzard's blessing, started their own game design company next door to Blizzard, like literally across the street. 
in in like a office building in Irvine, and uh, we were going to get the World of Warcraft license. So we wouldn't miss a beat. You know what I mean? Like we would just keep making the cards. Like nothing happened except it was under the auspice of a new company mm-hmm. that was much closer to Blizzard with whatever the financial arrangement was or however that, that shook out. Uh, eventually that relationship went south. I, I mean, but it was like not immediate. And it was just, I, I think at a certain point, the the trading card game was kind of small potatoes to Blizzard. They wanted to do their own, like, why not make $100 million in-house instead of $10 million in licensing fees or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. So they wanted. They brought us in, me and Dave Humphreys and someone else. I can't remember who the third was, but they were like, we want you to come check out this video game we're working on and give us some feedback. And so we're Dave and I are sitting there looking at this like alpha version of Hearthstone, which is very similar to the World of Warcraft game. And we go back to the office and we're like, uh, oh, sorry, it wasn't Dave, but so, someone else. But we were looking at like, uh, are we supposed to be giving feedback on this? Because this seems like awfully close to <laughs> the game we make now for them. And there's been these weird conversations and like bad energy. So anyhow, when we plan out our blocks, our year long worth of sets, we had to have a creative hook. Whatever the the plane we were on or the particular enemy we were focusing on. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. There was a big back and forth with Blizzard because they're really protective of the license. So we would like have to do this meeting with them. The meeting would often be like multiple meetings. It would get like whatever. It was a big deal. So we got, uh, we sent them like our, here's what we're thinking for this year. Here you go. And they're like, we had to reschedule the meeting in like two weeks. <laughs> it's like, okay. So two weeks go by and then we, you know, again, set it again. And they're like, we got to reschedule. And I, I remember, I remember when they rescheduled the second time being like, they're canceling the, they're canceling the project. Like our lead time, what we need to, the, what we need to have our approvals to be able to do everything yeah. is it doesn't fit getting rescheduled back a month. And there's so much weird energy in the air that it's like, there's just no way that this is going to go down. So yeah, pretty soon after that, they brought, they shut down the license. They Hearthstone came out soon thereafter and the rest is that. Yeah, so you never officially worked on. I, I guess I kind of assume that the creatives from the card game moved over to the to the video game, but basically they just kind of took it over in house entirely. Ah, no, 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 no. I took a job somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. I I, I hopped onto another lily pad when I mean, and, <laughs> and, and I mean, Cryptozoic's still up and running. They're still making stuff, you know. But I I knew that was where, um, the 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 bread was buttered, and I did not have to borrow uh some sports terminology uh a long rebuild in front of me at yeah, the time yeah so uh, you don't want to uh, be on the cavaliers friend, right yeah exactly so uh my friends um you know the at, at stoneblade who make ascension primarily made soulforge for a while uh i mean the, the the people down there i've been friends of mine for like a really long time we were talking for a long time about me working down there and then everything kind of converged we're like they needed me they could afford me I was looking to leave Cryptozoic, and so you know, soon after we lost the World Warcraft license, I just started working down them down with them in San Diego. Okay, and I well, I think a lot of people might know the Eternal game that Direwolf Digital puts out, and you know, mm-hmm. we you worked there, they're local uh, here in Denver, I believe, or Boulder, or something like that. Um, and how long you were with uh, Direwolf for a while, right? Yeah, three years and four months. I was let go uh, right around Thanksgiving of 2019 mm. and took the job in July of 2016. So three and three years and four months. And now you have, you said you have, uh, you've had an EA project and you're now you're working with WotC. So you have a lot of different experience with different card games. And one of the things I'm curious about is many of some of your most popular like clipped broadcast moments are when you're really laying in 
to some cards or designs that maybe are questionable uh, in mm-hmm. magic, right? And, you know, I mentioned the ravenous chupacabra earlier. That's kind of one of your most famous uh Rants is rant, rants is unfair because I think it's all fair commentary. Just one of the one of the times when you really just laid into a card design, and I know you're in, involved with wizards now, so don't you can't you know don't lay into them too badly. But in maybe a more abstract way, what do you think are some of the like card game design fundamentals that need to be adhered to in order to create a successful and fun game environment? That's a big question. That's a mouthful, but I think you get what I'm going for, right? Yeah, I do. I think the big thing, I mean, set aside the, the this sort of terminology excludes commander. It's not intended to, but like it is a two player game. And I think that the places where the game breaks down and has broken down, certainly competitively, very frequently is the spot where I am working in isolation and then I try to kill you in one turn or present an overwhelming problem in one turn. And you look at at a legacy. I think it's better now, maybe than it was four or five years ago. But like, what's the what's the sneak and show experience? What's the reanimator experience? And it's just sitting there, manipulating resources, sculpting a hand, and then here's this burst kill. And I think magic is as most fun, where it's like you and I each do some stuff, and eventually we hash it out on the table. Mm-hmm. That doesn't necessarily have to mean we're just attacking and blocking. Yeah. I think that's actually, I think that is a good recipe often. It doesn't mean that exclusively like you playing with removal spells and planeswalkers and trying to defend yourself before you accrue this major advantage. So you can accrue this major advantage. That game can be fun too. It isn't just like my jackal pups against your albino trolls. The game can be richer than that and be really fun. But I think, you have to sort of lean into it being a two player game and it being an interactive thing and both of us getting to do sort of to, to an extent, I mean, the interaction is going to be destructive to some extent. That is the nature of the game, but like you and I each to get to do our thing, whatever that looks like. And then we settle it out in uh, like key spots or leverage points that involve interaction and decisions. Yeah. When does that start to break down? Do you think? What you're saying in terms of like legacy and maybe modern is what's what I'm hearing is sort of like all in sort of combos that kill you out of nowhere or where it's I'm manipulating things that don't really involve interaction. That sort of seems like it's a consequence of maybe a, a larger card pool. Like so there's, as, as we work with a larger amount of cards, there's more interactions that can lead to weirder combos. Right. But is there more of a nuance than that that you're speaking to? Um, it's a blend of those two things. I think it is true that as the card pool expands, you're going to get more redundancy in certain places. But I think, like, I really don't like the, uh, the is it Phoenix experience in modern with Faithless Looting? Because the number of cards in the deck that are exactly the same or essentially the same, and the number of game actions that the player is taking that don't involve the other player having any agency, any information, yeah. any whatever... I just don't think that experience is very fun. I don't think monopolizing, like taking a disproportionate number of the total game actions in a game in a way that doesn't uh, offer input or agency to the other player is just not super interesting. That deck at the end of the day is just putting numbers onto the battlefield. It's not the worst experience. It doesn't kill you out of nowhere. But I think like the 24 cantrip deck is just not that much fun, not that replayable. And that is partially a large carpool thing, but that is also partially like you, you don't have to 
You don't have to print up necessarily. You could choose not to do yeah. that. And that pushes back against that tide a little bit. Yeah. What do you think is a mechanic that Magic has that no other TCG currently does that you think is really, really strong or really positive or an asset to Magic that other games have a harder time replicating? The lands. Just like how evocative it is. Uh, set aside like the goodness of like the uh, resource system, um, the variance it produces and all that stuff is good. Like, you know, when you're playing, when, when you're on the draw you're and you're playing like a physical event or even online, you're just like sweating, waiting for them to play their first land because it's like it opens up so much of like, this is what my opponent's potentially up to. These are the cards yeah. I have to think about. And then like when the second land is something that you don't when, that you do expect, it's like, OK, it's further confirmation. When the second land is something you don't expect, it's like, oh. I have to question some of my initial assumptions. And that's also just like the design space that comes out of it, the art and the tone that are, that's like evoked by these, by these cards. Like it is awesome. And it's still the same. Like, I remember thinking that like the first time, like 95 or 96 where, where someone's first land at my local store was a Tron piece and being like, I had not even considered ever building a deck with this. And just like, what could even be going on here? Like, I, it, like it's a paradigm shift. And it's not like because we had a conversation or I saw their hand. It was just like they took a requisite game action. They did the most basic thing you can do in a game of Magic. How much got expressed in that moment and how much like my opponent knows that I also haven't seen this before. So it's like that they're blowing my mind without having to say anything. Like there's nothing, there's no replica for that. And um, I, it's an easy thing to take for granted, but... I do think that that element of the resource system is just like just so much gets communicated, so much emotional expression from these like really rote repetitive game actions. Yeah, it's interesting because I think a lot of I got to follow up on this because I think there's a, a lot of people, I think especially newer players when they have they have experience with other digital games that maybe have more automated land systems like Hearthstone or Legends of Runeterra kind of has a similar system where you just, you just get your mana. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's just sort of a generic crystal or something like that. Um, Eternal, of course, has what the influence system. Is that what it was called? Yeah, it's somewhat analogous to, to lands, but also different. Yeah. And uh, I like that quite a bit. It seems it was a little bit more flexible than magic lands. But I think people would often say that lands are one of magic's drawbacks now and sort of like a hindrance because of the fact that there's there's high variance baked into screw or flood or color screw or things like that. And I think it's interesting that you're sort of pointing it out as both flavor like flavorful and also informational. Like when I'm when I'm playing a game of Runeterra and someone gets their second mana crystal, it's not quite as interesting as saying, oh, they they played an island, now they're playing a forest. I know they're doing some something simicky, perhaps. Right. You know what I mean? Like or like you said, they could be playing all, all sorts of numbers of things that actually are strategically interesting and revealing in a different way. I think that when we see a game like Hearthstone or Legends of Ruterra or any of these other games uh break sales records in year twenty eight then I'm happy to have the conversation about should we be questioning some of the foundations of lands. Until then, I think I, I have actually softened my stance a little bit here. I think if you would ask sure. me five years ago, ten years ago, can you make a fun game that people play for a long time that don't that doesn't have mana, like a, a variable resource system in some form or fashion? Yeah. I would have said no. And now I think uh Hearthstone, Runeterra, 
a couple other games are sort of proof of concept that like no you can you can do this and people can play this game for 10 years and have a really good time but magic is just on a different in terms of like longevity in spite of the fact that the most powerful set is still alpha like a lot of these other games do get subsidized by the fact that you just can like slowly inflate in a way that's there's plausible deniability it's not like super explicit like magic is always coming back like magic every magic set has been not the most powerful one of all time alpha still has that and so to have that kind of longevity that kind of sales that kind of growth in the player base i think that doesn't necessarily mean you can't point to everything and say like oh obviously everything is the best then but i do think the resource system is so foundational to the experience that it shifts the burden of proof substantially good point I also, I should I should point out that uh, the question about the best mechanic that Magic has is from our patron Spencer. We have a few patron questions sprinkled in here. Cool. I want to give him the shout out. Do you have any advice for anyone who thinks they want to explore game design, whether as a job or a hobby, or just because they love card games or board games or anything like that? I, I guess I have a, a couple. Um, on a practical level, I would say. Um, whatever you can learn to do um, tech side is really valuable. Um, I mean, you know, I'm actually sort of like of an old generation at this point. Like I came in working only on physical games, my transition to moving primarily to digital, although not even exclusively is like most people who are getting their foot in the door now are coming in strictly working mobile or working on digital games. And there's an expectation in a lot of studios that the designers aren't just sitting there like at certain studios with certain resources. Yes, you sit in a lab, you come up with like 20 cards and you just email the engineers. And then four days later, you have your 20 cards later to test. A lot of studios, the expectation is the designers can also do at least some of the programming work, at least some of the, the Unity scripting. So if you can put that on your resume, it's a huge deal for getting your foot in the door for an associate position. Um, that's kind of on a practical. If you're looking to do magic design, my personal opinion, I don't think this is necessarily shared by all of my colleagues, is I think it is more helpful to uh, design cubes than it is to grind a magic competitive. Because cubing gives you the experience of how do I create a fun overall experience? Part of creating a fun overall experience are the is the things that I choose not to do as well yeah. as the things that I choose to do. And that experience is much more analogous than to designing a magic set than like playing magic very successfully and then porting that over to play design. Like there's a lot of people out there who can give good power level feedback in terms of actually sculpting the play experience in a way that's positive. That is so much harder. And I think cube is the best analogy to that that the average magic player has some access to that's a yeah it's really hard to design a cube if you ever tried it especially like a small cube yeah like trying to trying to do like a 360 card cube is really challenging and what do you think a set is yeah like, it's, like it's a, pretty close to a 360 card you actually draft it as as that more or less yeah, i mean that's 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 one thing that i do like about magic set design still is that it it really does seem like the limited experience is still fundamental even mm-hmm. though I'm not sure how popular it is compared to constructed, but it must have some level of popularity because it still does drive a lot of the set design. At least it seems like it does. Well, I think in the absence of limited being supported, and I think there's it's an open question how much you want it to be part of your organized play or on coverage. It's it's complicated, but I do think the 
if you only have constructed from the sets, the experience of exploring the set is just a race to find the 5% of the card pool that's pointed towards construct. The experience of limited lets you kind of celebrate all the pieces of the card pool. Yeah. It's way more varied because your opponent's just playing with random cards and so are you. Um, it is really indulgent too. Like, I mean, it's 15 bucks to play three matches or whatever. It's like, I, I don't know how the economics of it bear out over time or if it's, it's the most sustainable thing to be leaning heavily into now. But um, I think in terms of celebrating the sum of the set, of experiencing the whole art. Like I, I think draft and sealed are like so critical to that. Yeah, I'd agree. All right. I would like to move on a little bit to talking about your broadcasting experience and how did you get involved in broadcasting? Did you start with star city? Um, that's a, I mean, I, I had like a public speaking background of sorts. Like I was a competitive debater in high school. So it wasn't like, I was coming from like no background, but I I have no formal broadcasting experience. Um, I think SEG was trying to do some coverage when they were getting off the ground and it was a really like lowbrow effort initially. It was like, we're covering, we have a tournament that's going to happen in San Diego. Who do we know in San Diego that we can trust <laughs> to do this? Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't for a while um, until I got flown to my first show. Like I, I basically just stayed local for a while. What what year was SCG getting going? Uh, I mean, I'm trying to think of when I played in my first. I have a, I have a Facebook note that was a tournament report for a legacy open I played in Los Angeles that I could dig up. But I think 2010, 2011. I mean, it okay. was. Yeah. I, it's it's you had to go in the way back machine. I don't know if there's even any archives of this stuff. But um, you know, things were going well, I guess, well enough, but. SCG got to the point where they wanted to like make it somewhat professional yeah. and part of making it professional was uh, having a smaller, like more stable cast of people doing it. Um, and I got uh, offered a role when the initial kind of calling down uh, occurred and survived every wave of calls for a little <laughs> while. And then, um, you know, there was one year where it was basically just five broadcasters doing all the shows. And that was when it was like, all right, it's on for real now. Like I'm doing mm-hmm. two shows a month and traveling all the time. And, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the resources putting into this, what they're willing to pay me to do it is enough where like I can actually take it really seriously. So how have you grown as a broadcaster, do you think like, did you always sort of have the defined uh, more of the, the color commentary role? Is that something that you grew into? Is that something that your play experience informed? Initially, if you go, if you can even find these archives, Lord knows if they even exist. Um, the early broadcasts were just two people talking. There was no play by play. There was no color. It was just two people talking. The first show that I did with Cedric just he was play by play and I was color and there was no conversation just happened. And it, after a few rounds, it was like, Oh, we're like, this feels different. Like we're doing something. It feels like a, feels like a broadcast. We're doing a broadcast now. Um, I do think that my, like I've always been someone who's enjoyed watching magic more than playing it. That's not always true, but often it's been true. And sort of like putting myself in the seat of the person I'm watching, imagining the things that they're thinking about, the emotional experience that they're having has always been like, that's been the part that's been stickiest to me. Not necessarily like, am I winning my matches or not? Or am I having a good time in this tournament? And so I think that that outlook 
sort of naturally lends itself to um, uh, more of a color commentator position. There's also a way like Cedric just has this like command of the broadcast that does not come naturally to me. It's sure. like I I I uh, I'm always like I wouldn't say nervous, but I have this like self awareness about the thing that prevents me from being able to call it. And the, he's just so smooth. It's like it's like an extension of his body. Or something, sure, sure. I can't, you know what I mean. Whereas I'm like just in my own head so much in this in the scant times that I've had to do. Oh my gosh, yeah. uh, the the the, the play by play stuff, and also like I just don't work with anyone except for Cedric. I did the mocks a few years ago where I called a few a few rounds with with Marshall and and Reed, I think, and you know we've occasionally had emergencies or rotations where I've called, but it's just been Cedric for like well over ninety percent of it. So yeah, I don't know how much of the play by play is like. I can't do it versus like I've never had to try to do it. So how, you know what I mean? But um, uh, the the sum of everything I think lends itself to just like me being in that role and being pretty comfortable with it. Yeah, it's really hard. We've been lucky enough a couple couple of times we've been on the Magic Streamers League uh, that a, a couple of volunteers put on. It's actually pretty rad. And we've done commentary for that a few of those nights. And yeah, when you're just trying to show up, and talk about a game of magic that's happening in front of you. And you're like, what do I, what do I do here? Like, is, is someone supposed to guide this? Are we supposed to have a conversation about it? And like, like you said, it's, it's, it's hard to feel natural in that, in that scenario where you're like, you know, am I sounding dumb? Am I sounding smart? What does someone care about in the other side of the camera? It's really weird. Yeah. And, um, paper magic, I compare a lot to baseball because the pace of play is pretty slow. There's a lot of downtime. People shuffling, shuffling their deck or thinking or whatever. And also, yeah. a lot of the time you are watching, the game is in garbage time. Like, it's been decided. That's a good point. So you get you have the sort of the baseball equivalent of, like, it's 8-1 to one in the seventh inning. Everyone's pulled their starters. What do we talk about for the next hour? Because it's still going to be another hour before this game is over. And so I, I, I do think that, like, my... Uh, ability to kind of like fill in the air a little bit or rant about stuff or whatever you want to call it is like it is not just convenient it's like a professional necessity because you just are <laughs> it is not that interesting to talk about the game a good percentage of the time like there's <laughs> moments that are high leverage or there's moments where something interesting is going on but it is a yeah. lot of downtime and it's a lot of garbage time and you can't go silent so you got to figure out something to, to fill in the gaps with yeah what do you think makes game coverage engaging whether that's magic or otherwise, like what are you trying to do? Do you think? I think you're trying to give the user the experience of like thinking and experiencing with the player. Like there is a layer of abstraction when you're watching sports, like professional sports, because the people you're watching are so plainly like you cannot imagine what it is to dunk from the free throw line or to hit a home run off a 95 mile per hour pitch. It's just physically impossible for the overwhelming majority of human beings. So some of what's, I think a lot of sports is just like the celebration of human achievement is sort of the thing of just like, look what a certain level, a certain outlier person is capable of doing. Magic is a lot more egalitarian. Like you could figure this stuff out. You could think about it enough and you could be there one day. And I think there's something about, I'd like to try to imagine threading a needle between celebrating like how awesome it is for certain players to be able to play the game at the high level while also making it appear accessible enough that it's not, this is not some otherworldly human achievement that you're biologically excluded from. Like 
If yeah. you don't have to care about it like this, you don't have to. It's a lot of time and energy you have to devote. I'm not saying you should do it, but it's not inaccessible for you. So find a way to make it deep and engaging, and like call it out for what it is, but also don't make it seem too far removed from the person watching. So that's one thing, Patrick, that I do think honestly that Star City does a little bit better than Wizards of the Coast is in terms of the broadcast is because maybe it's because Wizards of the Coast is so many more um, pro tours that I've watched where it is sort of like a celebration of like the elites and the truly excellent. But I think like on the SEG tour, especially it feels more accessible to more people mm-hmm. where it's like, Hey, I can, I could be, you know, any number of these players, right? I could, I could, I could see myself be a grinder on this. I could have some success. Like these people, I know them by name. I know their face and know the kind of decks that they like. I know what team that they're on. And I think that's a success of Star City. Is that something that you think that Star City is focused on? And then, and that that's been an area of success for it? So I think there is a difference between this is the, like the Pro Tour, I believe that the average person watching when you're when you're talking about Sunday and there's 25 or 35,000 people watching whatever those those numbers are I think the average viewer could not tell you how to qualify for the pro tour they could not tell you how to the event they're watching how these people got there most of them I believe could not tell you how they just know that this is like these two people are awesome because one, they're here, and two, the broadcasters are telling me that they're awesome, and three, they're they're playing a match right now for twenty or thirty or forty thousand dollars. Like that is yeah. just a, a level of credibility and seriousness that is uh, tonally very different. And I think, especially once you're talking about sort of an exclusive uh, a tournament where you can't just show up, there is some amount of like um, putting these people up on some rarefied air. Like that is not that's natural. I, I don't even think that's like. Uh, disingenuous sales salesmanship. I think that's uh, that's just the, the architecture that you have in place. Star City Games is like, do you got fifty bucks? All right, we're in Indianapolis right now. Next week we're gonna be in Knoxville. You live in Knoxville. You can show up and play in this thing. Like that is just a. I don't want to say it, it's it's derogatory and inaccurate to call it a, a traveling circus, but it is like it is. We come to town to town. You could just be here that next week. You know what I yeah. mean? So I think there is naturally going to be the tone is going to be a little bit more egalitarian a little bit more casting a wide net um, just as the nature of the monetization models and what, like how you play in the tournament in the first place. For sure. Craig, one of our regular question asker patrons, he wanted to know, and I do too, is do you think there's a skill overlap between being able to play magic well and then being able to talk about magic in an engaging manner? I, I think there's a relationship I don't think it's a one-for-one thing necessarily. Some of the most uh, brilliant Magic players would not be particularly good in the booth, and many of the best broadcasters would not necessarily avail themselves well if they played uh, competitively. I think there is a framework for viewing the game that can be a little bit more conversational in tone, that some people engage with it that way, and that can lend itself to that, that overlap. Also thinking about I think a lot about like cross pollination, like trying to put or imagine things in like sports metaphors or other metaphors such that um, you're able to communicate the concepts in a way that to someone who doesn't necessarily have this like deep background with magic specifically, because the rules are really complicated. Yeah. 
thinking about the game at a, at a high level can make you think of where the analogies are and other things that you care about. And if that happens to be sports and you start seeing the crossover, I think that can be really conducive to, to broadcasting. But some of the concepts are really complicated and pretty opaque. And it, it can be a tough thing to express, even if you understand them at a really high level. For sure. Makes sense. What have been some of your favorite moments working on the tour besides the dinner after the after each day, I imagine? I mean, there was a time where when we were first kind of getting off the ground, 2013, 14, 15, where it was like we were looking at our numbers and the Grand Prix numbers. And when we were doing better than Grand Prix or when we were like 2Xing the Grand Prix, we were like we felt really good. Like we were we were pumped about it. Now it's like uh, I, I don't think about – I don't have my self-worth connected in like, are we the best broadcasting team? Do I think we're putting on the best show every weekend? I still think we do a good job, but like my, uh, you know, I've done it for long enough and my life is filled with higher priorities such that like I care about doing a good job and doing it professionally, but the self-worth and like winning this imagined competition every weekend is not there. Um, For me, a lot of my favorite moments now are just like watching someone who uh, we don't know, uh, and who doesn't appear to have high expectations for themselves make a run. Like that is part of the charm of magic. Is oh like yeah. The top eight is not the eight best players in the room. Like you can have your weekend. It really does happen. And I've seen some, like I've watched some matches. I, I can't like think of any off the top of my head where like we're on the other side of the convention hall. Right. So like they're in one corner, we're over there and we like this player deals lethal in game three of the finals and they're emotional and we hear this like eruption of their friends and family who are there like who just cannot wait to like hug their friend or whatever the thing is and it's like yeah that's that was the, those were some of the moments that got me connected to this in the first place and it still resonates 25 years later being pretty removed from it but watching people have their first moment especially when it's unexpected yeah. is like really cool it's really cool totally all right let's let's kind of combine a few of our earlier topics kind of about game design and magic and your playing experience. So I think it is fair to say that a lot of players do see the fast, the past few years of magic design is a little bit like tumultuous mm-hmm. and they might point to uh, like a really high power level of cards being pushed combined with like maybe in a, what seems like a lack of balance testing or not enough balance testing or, you know, however you want to phrase it. Do you agree with the general community sentiment? I think that it is really easy to extrapolate too much from too little. Like, yes. So we have Throne of Eldraine and uh, Born of the Gods uh, uh, are often talked about as like... Yeah, War of the Spark. War of the, yeah, these like war, uh, watershed like, oh, look at the designs gone off the rails. They're power creeping. Look at all these cards in vintage. Slightly at, before that was Amonkhet which was a set and block that was railed as being like nowhere near powerful. Corset 2021 just came out. And is anyone pointing to that as like, are there any obvious power level? There's some good cards, right? Of course there's some good cards, but is there an Oko? Is there a once upon a time? Is there a, no, it's just like, there's some stuff in there. It seems fine. Um, I think, so if you have these like two or three sets in a row where there's some stuff that comes out that looks like it's out of bounds, it can be easy to extrapolate like, oh, this is the new normal, even though the sets prior to it and the sets after it don't confirm that sort of analysis. Yeah. Like it can just literally be five cards went out the door messed up 
And even if the aggregate power level is higher now than it was five or 10 years ago, which I, I believe is just true. Um, I think there is a philosophy of no rares left behind. Like every rare has to be for someone, even if it's not necessarily for standard play. So that kind of raises the floor of what a rare ha- or a mythic has to look like. And if you look at, I mean, if you go, go and look at Odyssey, look at how many rares in Odyssey are like, completely transparently unplayable. There's no context where you'd be interested in this. I believe that the philosophy now is better. I think it's bad to do Odyssey. I don't think you should make half the rares unplayable and not interesting. Um, But that does raise the floor. So I do believe it's true that like, yes, the sets are more powerful now than they were 10 years ago. Mostly I think because the rares are just, the floor is higher on all the rares and mythics. But does that mean that every set, they're trying to put an Oko or a Once Upon a Time into every single set. Uh, I I don't think the data really confirms that. But I think it's also important to update your priors, right? Like, if it's two years of this, then, like, yeah, that sounds like an expression of a philosophy. It'd be weird for them to have these kind of outliers for two straight years. But if it's, like, two or three sets, and then things sort of crest back into inside of a standard deviation of what you'd yeah. expect, then maybe it was just a couple cards went out the door the wrong way. Yeah, I think... One of the things that I think people are kind of frustrated with is the communication from wizards is sort of saying like, hey, we're trying to do this, right? Like, you know, here's like our new philosophy or like our updated card design philosophy of like, you know, the, the fire philosophy people point to or something like that. And then they're saying, well, if this is the result of that, then I'm a little bit frustrated. And, I, and, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to play devil's advocate here or argue with you because I don't necessarily have... Like, I think that I can I can definitely see what you're saying, right? Is like mistakes can be made and we're in a paper game. So you can't just errata the digital card like you can mm-hmm. in Eternal or Rune Terror or something like that. Like, I think that one of the things that I would point to is that Wizards seems very reactive. They seem mm-hmm. to have to react to problems of their own creation, whether that's a massive companion errata or the the amount of bands that we've seen even in standard in mm-hmm. the past you know year plus and that seems a little bit unusual like what besides identifying like individual cards like what do you think might be underlying causes in terms of the like the philosophy of design that you you've seen like do you see like a, a philosophy shift that's impacted that and you kind of mentioned the no rares left behind thing and you yeah. think it's more than that uh, well i mean not every card on the band list is a rare so, like Veil vale Summer, right? So it yeah. is. It isn't just like a function of um, the rares being subsidized to some extent. Um, I think first and foremost, it starts from a. It's not necessarily the cards are getting more powerful. It's the bar is getting lower for. It's possible that the bar is getting lower for banning cards. Like I played Saga Masks Standard and Saga Tempest Standard, which. Uh, one may point to and say, look, there were no bans in this format. And now there's like eight or nine. What's going on here? I challenge you to go back and play that format with the decks. It was awful. Like people, <laughs> pe- like people regularly died on turn two or turn three in standard. Some of the best decks were like 24 counter spells, um, like a bunch of viable land destruction and all discard strategies. Like the games were bad. If you took 2020 design sensibilities back to 1999, you would ban 25 cards. It's not like it, it's not like it would be close. It was not close to okay back then. It was just the standards were a little bit different. And also, like back then, Magic 
kind of definitionally only appealed to like really hardcore spikes because like creatures were awful and the games were just like dark ritual combo kills and 25 counter spells. So obviously no one casual is playing your game. So once you're already selecting for the most invested, the most spiky fraction of the player population, then yeah, yeah, no one cares if the games are 25 counter spells versus stone rains versus turn two combo kills. It all just seems like, yeah, that's the way the game gets played. So I think that some of the updating is just the bar for banning is lower and it's appropriate for it to be low. Um, that said, like there are there are more people playing Magic now than before. And not only in terms of volume of players, but also volume of games that get played because the digital platforms uh, accelerate this. And also the incentives are higher. Like there's tournaments constantly for a lot of money trying to qualify. Mm-hmm. This was not the case in, I was there in 1999 and 2000. That was not the case. There was no Magic Online. We were just playing games at our local shop. We had a sense of what was good. But with these formats that we look back and we were like, oh, there's like eight good decks. You could play whatever you wanted to. Like, would it hold up in 2020 scrutiny? I think in a lot yeah. of these cases, no. So I understand the, the frustration. I'm not defending like each of the individual designs that have been banned. And also plenty of the designs that haven't been banned. Like I have my my critiques of plenty of the stuff that has happened, not just in the last year or two, but like over the entire timeline of the game. But mm-hmm. I do think that people are kind of mistaking cause and effect a little bit. Like, I do not think there are more bannings because the design has gotten worse. I think the architecture and the updating of priors necessitates more bannings. And that is why we are the vast majority of the reason why we're here now. Mm -hmm. How do you personally define like what it means for a format to be healthy? Like, what would you look for to say like standards healthy or moderns healthy? I, I think a lot about like rings or rings inside of a tree. Like as you get closer to the center, you sort of want the, the lion's share of the play patterns to be what we would traditionally define as healthy or fun. And to go back a little bit like that, you talked a little bit about wizards messaging and how sometimes it feels incomplete. Like part of it is discussions about what is fun from a game design perspective. What we talk about, internally is really complicated and is the type of thing where if a reader sees a definition of fun that does not align with their definition of fun or what they believe their definition of fun to be they go like this is just this is a crock like you know what you like you it is harder to express that it is much easier to say this deck is winning 55 percent of the time we have the numbers so i think i i think that is a function of the the that complicates the messaging a little bit. Is is that reality? Um, uh, could you refresh me? Sorry, what the initial question oh, was. I, yeah. So yeah, like how do how do you look at it? Like if if you oh, were yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, like 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 what 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 sort of are 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 signs of a healthy format for you? I think it is are the things that are sort of the core of the format. Things that we would generally agree to be uh, diverse, good gameplay, different incentives with the ability to tease out. Like, does it feel like the possibility space is wide enough that you could discover something new in the middle of the season and do something on your own? Like, I was covering the tournament last week and someone uh, made a deep run, I believe top eight with, like, a blue-red is it beatdown deck. Like, Spells Matter, the Prowess 3-3 Flyer, and the Dragon that grows when you play spells, and Riddle Form, like, all that stuff with like ops and shocks or whatever. And not only is that cool because it's different, but it's cool because it implies that there's other stuff out there that people haven't found yet or hasn't gotten their opportunity to shine. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think like 
does the carpool appear deep enough with enough viable stuff that every once in a while something weird emerges that keeps you like engaged? Like if you have your pet deck, it feels like, oh, I just got to figure out the last two cards and I could actually have something here. And that's really dampened when it's like, yeah, the same two decks or three decks or the entire the top eight every single. So I know that you mentioned to me that you're playing a decent amount of Pioneer mm-hmm. and Modern right now, and they've both experienced some recent bannings, uh, more significantly in Pioneer than Modern, perhaps. But right now, what do you think about those formats? Like, would you define them as healthy? Um, it's tough to, to answer that abstractly uh, with Pioneer because the bans are so recent that I and yeah. we haven't had any high leverage tournaments such that. I don't know if we know what the reality is. I know what I experienced in the the Pioneer Leagues, but like if we had a Pioneer Pro Tour in a month, would it look like that? Probably not. So, uh, you know, it's hard to, to, to say too assertively. And with Modern, you have to sort of grade on the scale of like, it is a large format. It is more analogous to Legacy than Pioneer, in my opinion. And so what constitutes healthy has got to be a different set of definitions because like the games could be over very fast. Uh, you are going to have some amount of two ships passing in the night. So like, does it feel like there's a good blend of proactive and reactive and combo stuff and that your pet deck is not just overpowered or outclassed by recent printings, I think is more the definition I would use than like, is the gameplay abstractly good by that classic definition? That's interesting because um, just recently we were talking, we were reacting to the initial set of data after the Pioneer bands, and we were also talking about our experiences playing Pioneer specifically in the leagues and such. And that's exactly what Stan was talking about, where he felt like even playing something like Is It in Soul, mm-hmm. for example, like a deck that he really has a lot of affection for. And he was sort of extrapolating his experience there to anybody who would want to play sort of a a pet deck or a deck that is ostensibly should looks like it should be good sort of just getting eaten alive by something like Niv or mm-hmm. something like um, uh, Mono Green Walkers or something like that, where it's really hard. If it feels like you're getting outclassed by decks that are playing piles of 2019 and 2020 cards, which is like something like Niv does a lot, mm-hmm. right? Then, like you said, it's like that can feel rough and that can make you feel like maybe this format isn't as healthy as I'd like it to be. Well, it also implies like, one of two things, right? Like we're either in the stasis forever where we're always going to be paying off the debt of these 2019 cards, or this is the new normal where every year is going to just invalidate the year that came before it. And neither of those seem pleasant. Um, yeah. That said, I think that that pioneer did start from a position of like, we are going to have to do a lot of bannings to get the format into a place of equilibrium or something approaching that. And like, yeah, there was a lot of power out of the format in 2019. No question. But it's not like every single impactful 2019 card got banned. Plenty still around. It's just some of the outliers or some of the sort of long-term balance issues uh, got removed such that the format's a little bit powered down, a little bit slower. Like Inverter of Truths, to me, is not just a 2019 issue. That's a forward compatibility issue, too. There's going to be a lot of theoretical designs you could print that are going to be problematic with that card. Thassa's sure. Oracle puts a spotlight on it, but also... I could imagine a bunch of fairly innocuous designs where that card is a problem anyway. So that one to me isn't even just like a power level ban so much as like paying off future debt. Yeah. What are you playing right now in those formats? Uh, in Pioneer, I'm playing uh, Boros Wizards or Boros Burn. I've had it called a couple different things. I think the sure. deck is busted. Just, just, just crushing the leagues. 
constructed rating got over to like 1875 the other day. I'm not oh playing, I'm not playing a ton either, but uh, you know, uh, especially after the bannings. Um, I think my last five weeks, something like, I don't know, 20 and five, 21 and four decks like awesome. My goodness. Um, and in modern, I'm playing, uh, Boros prowess, which is not, I think as qualitatively good, but still plenty fun. So Boros Prowess, not not into the Is It version or the Rakdos version or the what's the other? I saw the Gruel version. Nah, it's like mono red and some cyborg cards that are white. Got it. Yeah. So let let's talk a little bit about since Pioneer is a little bit more dynamic than Modern right now. Tell me what do you think is good about the the Wizards deck? We have been noticing a ton of different red decks in the league dumps. Mm-hmm. Because they're different enough, there's a lot of different ways you can build the red decks that they're showing up on just the you know the card differences required to get onto the league list. Yep. But they're not as successful or not as being played as much in like the prelims or the challenges. And people seem to be gravitating towards mono green walkers, like Niv. We still do see some like mono black or Azoria Spirits players. Do you think people are sleeping on the power of mono red? Like is it just able to get under like mono green and Niv and anything trying to control you or what? Um, I, I don't think the Niv matchup is particularly good, but a lot of the, I, I mean, mono black, mono green, uh, the spirits decks, whatever. I feel very comfortable in, in all those matchups. Um, I, I think the, uh, the Niv Mystic deck just gains enough life along the way before they yeah. lock you out of the game that they can. Yeah. Uro does that. Yeah. 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 yeah and, and they have like Knight of Autumn in the sideboard, which is other stuff, you know, they have cheap interaction, uh, they just no. have a good. They lose their land sometimes, but they have like the right mix to hang with a like a beat down burn oriented deck. I think a lot of it is just you have a lot of really powerful stuff to do for one mana. So yes, I, that that I mean, this is going to sound like kind of stupid and self evident, but like it means you're always doing something good on on the play. It means you keep up on the draw. It means that you're casting like multiple spells turn two and turn three, and a lot of these decks are just. Like, they make one play a turn. Even when they have a Man Accelerator, they're still just, like, one play a turn for a long time. And if you kill their Man Accelerator, they just have nothing going on for, for a while. Um, Luris is also still plenty good. I mean, it's it's not like... Before, it was so outrageous. Like, yeah, just, insane. Just so, like, not even close to okay that, like, uh, you I, I think you were priced into playing it. Now I see a lot of mono red lists that do not bother with it. They have Ferocidon, Chain Whirler, Chandra. Like they do play some of the more expensive permanents. Um, but I think you could argue that it was it's correct to build the deck this way, even absent Loris. And even if Loris doesn't come up all the time, it still comes up enough that it's like worth making some small sacrifices to enable. Sure. Thinking about your work with Watsi, what are your goals as you work with them? Do you have goals personally, or like the the goals kind of assigned to you by them, or like what you know? What's where? How do you want to push Magic in any direction you can in in your time with them? I I mean I don't think about it quite in those terms. Like I, so the okay. next set that's the next set that's coming out is the first set where like cards I've designed are coming out, and it's like that is going to be enormous. It's easy to get jaded when you do the same job for forever, and especially when my relationship with Magic is like, yeah, I'm sort of this like sarcastic commentator and I'm like critical of designs or whatever. It's easy to think that you're like a level removed from having that kind of emotional experience. Like seeing cards that I designed or influenced design of go to print and see people love them. It's like that's going to be cool. I played this game for 20. Oh, yeah. It's going to be I played this game for 25 years and when I started playing the notion of 
I, I wouldn't have even have believed you if you told me human beings made the cards. Even though, like, how else could it be? But it seems like they just um, they just emerged from the ether one day. Like they were they were just they just created out of out of whole cloth. I think that I want to be a resource that people can avail themselves of, however it makes sense. And I think that, but like they have a good thing going. Like I I, I think that they are awfully diplomatic public facing. I don't know how much of it's policy or not. I'm not privy to everything because I'm not an employee and I don't really know, but it's like, do you know Do you know how much money Magic makes? Do you know how many people play this game? Do you know how long it's been around for? And for them to like have constantly have like their designs criticized or their like playtesting process criticized under that backdrop. I read this interview once with, um, or the story once about Chad Kroger, the lead singer of Nickelback, <laughs> where he's like, Every day he goes on to a radio station and the radio station asks them, asks him, why does your band suck? And why does everyone hate your band? And then every night he plays in front of a sold out arena. And then there's some amount of like, there is some amount of like the dissonance in like the constant, the constant criticism versus the reality of like, no, they're doing just fine. Like there's, there's what they're doing seems, and, and not to say that, they aren't cognizant of like mistakes or things they could have done differently, but I think they are very diplomatic um, all told against that backdrop that said, just any way that I can move the needle a little bit, any way that I can at least engage people in conversations about certain things. Anytime that someone says, Hey, can you look at these things, these 10 things, give feedback. And I get feedback on five of them and then two of them change. And I feel like things have been made incrementally better. It's like, that's awesome. I'm not looking to like revolutionize the way that sets get made or unpack their whole process. It's like, I want to be a useful cog in the machine. I want people to feel, uh, if they feel fractionally better about coming to work than they did otherwise, like awesome. If they feel like a little bit more security about testing the bounds of certain things, because they have someone who's equipped to like catch some backstops or, uh, like identify certain things. Awesome. But there's no like macro goal of like, Oh, I want magic to be this totally different game. It's like, no, I want to, I want to yeah. slot in and and fulfill a role, do my job well, and have that be it. Awesome. Well, I wish you the the best of luck in doing that. I'm sure with all your past experience, you're going to do just fine. And I'm looking forward to seeing some of the cards that come up in uh, what is it? Return to Return to Zendikar mm-hmm. or Battle for Battle for Zendikar Three. I forget what it's actually called. Zendikar Rising. What is it called? I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the, I my my mind the way that I've always tried this stuff is just a number set one set two set three set four set five set six set whatever it is in the car rising yeah so, so this, there we go so this is like set one this is for me this is set one this is the first one that I like worked on mostly from start to finish all right um I've kept you long enough Patrick but before we go um you know where can people find you how can they engage with you how do you want to be engaged with <sighs> Ooh, that's a loaded question. Okay, so you can find me on Twitter at Basic Mountain. Basic Mountain. My DMs are open primarily for the purposes of uh, fulfilling material for the, the satchel, fulfilling material for the mail back home. If you got a question, feel free to shoot me a DM. That's fine. Other social media platforms, let me think. I'm not really anywhere else except Facebook. And Facebook, I'm mostly a lurker and a sort of a, in a shell at this point. So I guess it's just... Twitter. But, you know, you can hang out okay. at the SCG broadcast, hop into Twitch chat. I'm there hanging out every once in a while when, when I'm not doing the commentary. So try engaging me with there. You can try engaging me with, it, with, yeah, with me there. Excuse me. <laughs> how uh, 
I guess speaking of the satchel, which I do think is awesome, um, Grant did ask, how many repeat questions do you get for the oh, satchel? Oh, well, okay. So it's uh, interesting. I do get a lot of variations of like, man, this fire philosophy, what's up with Oko? Sort of like questions that aren't identical, but like sure. are functionally the same. That I do get a fair bit of overlap on anytime there's like a design topic du jour, like particularly when there's bannings, um, I get a lot of questions that are kind of in the same space. Um, yeah. I got a ton of questions when companions came out and like they appear to be several standard deviations too good in non-standard formats. Um, but I, I, you know, there's a lot of uniqueness in there too, in the questions or anyone that has more of like a sort of a human interest arc or like what's your experience doing X, Y, and Z. Those are usually not repeated. Yeah. Well, Patrick, thanks again for your time. Thanks again for being uh, willing to do this and also for being an awesome member of our community. And that's it, man. Thanks for being on. And, uh, I'm hopefully we'll get you back in, in a year and talk about your experiences uh, working with Watsi. Yeah. And maybe some other games that have come out that you're not under NDA anymore. Right. Yeah. I, I, I mean, now we're at a point where I got, I got dirt on, I mean, I, that, we're at a point now where I, I don't think I'm going to be ever working with upper deck entertainment again for a variety of reasons. That could be a whole pod. Some of the stuff that I saw there would, would blow your mind. So you reach out anytime you're ready for it, but it's, Oh man, I'm, I'm hyped. We yeah. have some bonus uh, bonus episode fodder. Got skeletons in my design closet. A lot of skeletons. So whenever you're ready for it, you let me know. Awesome. All right. So that wraps up this bonus episode. If you haven't yet, subscribe to the podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. If you use Apple Podcasts, throw us a rating. Throw us a review. It's fun. It's easy. It makes me feel good about myself when I pull up the reviews. <laughs> Uh, if you want to submit a question to the pod, pick our brain on something in modern or pioneer, find us on Twitter at the dive down, all one word, email us the dive down, gmail.com. You can join our Patreon if you want. That's what brought you this episode. It was one of our early stretch goals. And thanks to you all. We hit it real fast. Um, you know, join any tier, even a buck, you get access to the super secret Slack server where you get to ask us questions that we then pass on to people like patrick here uh, patreon.com slash the dive down also got to shout out mana traders for sponsoring us use code the dive down all one word for 20 percent off your first three months of renting magic online cards as always special thanks to the bands nowhere and space blood for letting us use their music and until next week get out there and cast a lightning bolt 